0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today you get to hear my conversation with Brie Lascoda. She is the executive director of the Center for Religion and Civic Culture at USC, and her research explores how religions change and make change in the world. She's a leading voice working to enhance religious pluralism and community resilience in the United States, and around the globe. Bree advises foundations and government agencies on strategies for effective partnership and engagement. She's co-founder and senior advisor to the American Muslim Civic Leadership Institute and implementing partner for the United States Institute of Peace's Generation Change Program, where she trains emerging leaders committed to peace building from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and Colombia. Her writings have been published by the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, Religion Dispatches, Los Angeles Magazine, Zocalo, Brookings Institute, Aspen Institute, Chicago Council on Global Affairs, German Marshall Fund, Huffington Post, and Transmissions. Her commentary has been featured in The Economist. National Public Radio, Washington Post, Public Broadcasting, Voice of America, the Norwegian Broadcast Corporation, and Take Part Live. She's a member of the Pacific Council on International Policy, a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and a member of the CFR Religion Advisory Committee, a Truman National Security Fellow, a German Marshall Memorial Foundation Fellow, and Fellow at the Safe Communities Institute at USC. Quite an intro. She was also awarded the inaugural Fearless Ally Award in 2016 by the al Hebrew Foundation for her work with the American Muslim community, and in 2017, the World Economic Forum named Bree a young global leader. She is on the boards of several nonprofit organizations and government bodies working at the intersections of religion and public life, and was appointed by Mayor Eric Garcetti to two terms on his Interfaith Collaborative Advisory Group. Here's Bree. Well, I want to welcome Bree to the show today. It's so nice to have you here in my office. Thanks for having me. Um, and so I would love to be able to hear about what you're doing and what you do kind of on a regular basis, but also why it matters to you and, you know, and some of the reasons that I thought it would be good for you to
1: be on the show. So go for it. Yeah. Um, So I direct a research center at the University of Southern California called the Center for Religion and Civic Culture. And we do academic research. I would say it's the research that very few people read, um, but we spend a lot of time on. Um, And then we do a lot of community oriented problem solving and kind of policy related research. So using academic methodology and sort of rigor to apply to real world problems. Mm. Um, And then we do uh, capacity building, trying to help people understand how to advocate for themselves and for their communities and how to work in partnership with other groups. Sometimes that might even be very different from them or have a different set of interests. And then we also do some work on strategy, helping philanthropic organizations and um, even government agencies understand how to create more impactful change in ways that we think are worth investing in. And all of this is around the way that religion shows up in people's lives and how it shows up in public. So we like to say that we study how religions are changing and then how people use them to make change for the world. Um, and generally, we tend to focus on things that are kind of low uh there used to be low levels of um, disagreement around, so on things like homelessness or food or um, you know engaging with uh, making communities safer. So the environment around this has all changed dramatically, mm. and so things that used to be seen as fairly apolitical or universally um, accepted have shifted into more polarized directions. Um, but we still try to take as much of a uh, a neutral stance towards particular issues and also a neutral stance towards whether or not religion is good or bad, and just understand how it's uh, how it shapes the world around us and how it shapes people.
0: so, in terms of religion being good or bad, I mean, yes, there are there are so many gradations in in between. And so then, how would that be defined? I'm sure that it's something that you have kind of developed a, a sense about what would make it good or what would make it bad. But I'm also wondering about, what you found out from your students and how would they kind of define that distinction?
1: You know, it's a very, um, it can be a very nuanced thing. And then it can also be a very black and white thing. Mm-hmm. So on some level, it's, it's like pornography, you know, it when you see it, right, it, there are certain things that have a sort of intuitive sense that something is wrong, or something is off. And I think that often people have a, a, a real good meter for figuring out, well, you know, this is just not adding up, or this feels uncomfortable, or, I'm being asked to ignore things that I would think are um, problematic, or I'm constantly creating a narrative of self-justification, right, that Mm. I'm going through. So I think that there's a lot, uh, I mean, in in general, that doesn't, it's not part of the work that I do, because we deal with actors and people who are actors in the world, not actors in Hollywood, actors and people (laughs) in the world who are really problematic, right? They're engaging in behaviors that are Um, pro-social there's transparency in what they're doing they treat others with respect and then there are sometimes you come across characters or individuals or even organizations where you do get these um you know gut gut feelings but those Mm. gut feelings are really just the amalgamation of signals that are being sent to you that you can really say oh like there are things that are off here and generally Mm. the things that are off tend to be that there is a, a a way that information is controlled that you can't get access to. They use language that obfuscates rather than illuminates. And actually that kind of boundary policing, um, that's the thing that I see more common um, coming into the more mainstream as a result of polarization. Mm-hmm. That somebody who's in your in-group, but they do the wrong thing, the, the uh, arsenal at which you can aim uh, at them has been... Uh, yeah. Widened, and I think become a lot more vitriolic, and so that's where I think some of the you know your interests uh, dovetail with ours, where you see people who are boundary pushers uh, on what is acceptable from their group or their category um, engaging in something, and then as a result they get mm-hmm. a lot of harsh criticism uh, to the point of threat or mm-hmm. um, that happening, and that becoming becoming much more regular uh, and much more um, available to people through social media
0: right I mean the the idea of social media being something that uh, that people can use and the the facelessness of it the distancing of it where they can say very you know cruel things without mm-hmm. um, feeling like there's gonna be any kind of uh, ramification for them but it really it, it becomes an exercise for the people receiving these comments that they have to um, Either ignore them or find a way to understand why that's happening or that's happening to that degree or what button they pushed uh, in order to get that. Uh, I know that that recently uh, I did a podcast interview with a therapist who was raised in South Africa during apartheid and he talked about how he had been trained to think about himself in a certain way, to think about people of other races in a certain way. But the responses that we got to it were very political and, you know, mm-hmm. stay in your own corner. You know, if you don't you don't know what's going on now. And so you, you really shouldn't be talking. And so there is a there's a lot of emotionality. There's a lot of history. There are a lot of things where you do push a button without realizing it. But I'm wondering to go back to something that you were talking about that's really fascinating to me among a lot of the other things that you were talking about, about language. Um, that that language is used, but not in a mode of illumination. So what have you noticed? Can you give some examples of that that you've seen, particularly with the language that's used or the phrasing that's used?
1: A really good question. I was actually just on a sort of like public broadcast type show, and it was about shamans. Um, And which, you know, is It was really interesting when I finished the interview, very candidly, I thought, oh, I think I came off very sympathetic because I found my interviewer really um, antagonistic. And what was so interesting about that was the quotes they used actually were, I was a little bit more of the foil to the shamans, which is actually not a position that I would take um, because I think shamanistic engagement and and medicine and the ways of uh, indigenous communities healing are perfectly legitimate. Um, And at the same time, they're always really, um, bad actors. But what I really find is the most, um, the most interesting is when people take language that, uh, has filtered into popular culture and it tends to be scientific. So they'll say things like quantum. Like anytime I hear somebody, uh, who uses the word quantum and they have no background in scientists. And my, my husband is a scientist. He's a PhD in chemistry. Uh, I have very little understanding of what he does, but I respect the depth of his knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. He has very little understanding of what I do in religion. Mm-hmm. I have a great anecdote about that. Um, when we were first dating, we were playing Trivial Pursuit, and I grew up in a very religious household. And he got this card, and it said, in the Bible, he was stricken with boils as a test of his faith. And my brother, who was much younger, was the person who was supposed to answer it. He didn't get it. My mom was completely forlorn. Like, how could he not get this question? <laughs> and then my husband turned the card over, and he said, and he makes this kind of funny face, and he's puzzled, and he goes, job it says job I don't know why it says job and, I was like, uh. and my mom was <laughs> just she was just crestfallen because he didn't even have the context to understand job was Job Uh uh-huh. so as much as he was ignorant about what I do I'm really ignorant about what he does and he will point out all of the time where there are people who use words that, that really has no basis in anything uh, that would Anyone who's trained in any form of science would would look at or like mm-hmm. would see as in their world, and I think that for me, that's the thing that actually raises the most of my my triggers is when people will say things like quantum, or they'll use, you know, words like quarks, and they don't know what a quark is, or they'll they'll talk about how you know they can manipulate the space in between atoms, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they just are able to take something that we have heard, but we actually aren't ignorant, we are ignorant of, and then use the the gray space of our own ignorance to insert an interpretation that's not grounded in anything that's either empirical or, you know, understandable and is just a form of sort of um, creating, creating power
0: out of mm. ignorance. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so I, I think that that's my... When anyone, when anyone who is a a leader in any way, the the job of a leader is to make other people leaders, right? Like that's the number one rule I think Mm. of leadership Mm -hmm. is that what you're trying to do is help other people engage in their full potential as human beings and Mm -hmm. then live lives of flourishing. If you want that, then why would you ever want to hold someone else in a position of subservience, right? right? Why would you ever create a system where um, the knowledge that you have can't be shared in a way that is... um, accessible and powerful for someone else Mm -hmm. Uh, and why would you do that in a way that sort of creates you as a gatekeeper to something that they couldn't um, should be able to access as part of their flourishing and so for me whenever I see language deployed that way that's the number one signal that makes me suspicious
0: Mm. Uh, I love the idea of of a, a leader being someone who helps people become leaders because that you know that that also kind of presupposes I suppose that they have the um, the ability to want to impart that on other people that there isn't so much ego in the game that they need to be able to hold on to that kind of power or hold on to um, the information and be the source of that information. So yeah it's it's well it's interesting because there are a lot of people who will say I was really drawn in to someone's message, um, thinking that it was going to empower me. But at the end of the day, it may be just dependent on this person to just get a little bit more and a little bit more the next time, the next time, and also have to behave in a certain way or make sacrifices in order to get it or prove myself you know, worthy of mm-hmm. receiving it. So there's that whole piece, which is not a leader training other people to be leaders at all. But yeah, there are a lot of people too who will say that because it didn't make sense it was the thing that made them feel like it was on such a high level that then they had to work harder to get it because the other people in the room were nodding their head yes probably they didn't get it either because probably it didn't make sense but they wanted to be in good favor right with the other people in the room or the the person who was teaching the class and seemed like they got it but the less sense it made, the more it seemed enlightened and the more it seemed like it was challenging you to try harder to get it.
1: I mean, you will probably have a better reflection on this than I, but it seems as though that relates to the way in which we oscillate between our own feelings of being superior and our own feelings of being inferior, Mm -hmm. right? And that we, um, it's very natural, right? It's very Mm -hmm. natural for people to feel and oscillate between those. And I think if you intervene at the right time uh, with somebody who is in an up or down swing, that is a, a great ground from which to manipulate, um, because the the ground is already tilled for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but I also think that they're in doing change making in the world. You have to oscillate between these two ideas of kind of humility and hubris, right? You have to have enough hubris to think that you should you can change the world. And you have to be humble enough to understand your role in that, right? And you know, the limits of your power. Um, and that, I I often reflect on, you know, the the story of Bunam, uh, right? The 17th century, 18th century rabbi who was asked, like, what does the world need? And it's, you know, when you are um, crestfallen and sad and you are hurt and pained, um, you pull a slip of paper from your right pocket and it says, for you, the world was created. And it's a reminder that for you in that moment, the world, the entire world was created, right? Not humanity, but you as a person. But then you can get arrogant, right? And you can get overwhelmed and you can think that you're more special and more deserving. And so in your left pocket is a slip of paper that says, but you are but dust and ashes. And it's the idea that we actually need those things, those two ideas held in proper tension. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we have now, especially in sort of pop psychology and leadership studies, is we have one word solutions for everything, right? So if it's, if, you know, the latest thing is that you need to have grit, or, Right, love will solve everything, right? All of these things that everybody's writing one word books, right? <laughs> about okay. the exposition of why love is the most important thing in the world or, you know, grit or, um, you know, what's happened to, to trust, right? Like it's mm-hmm. no matter what it is, it's this indictment of these single phenomena. And I think that the human experience is far too complex. And it's not about having one thing that is the right solution, it's about having enough of the right things and proper harmony with each other, that you're not out of balance, and so I I think we tend to we tend to think about like a balance in terms of work or life, but I don't think we tend to think about a harm uh, sort of a harmonious set of characteristics or traits that enables us to walk through a very imbalanced world, mm. and I think that 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 kind of, in that's what, you know, the, the other big buzzword, right? Resilience, right? Like that's, that's a form of resilience of being able to sort of hold these things in the proper, um, in the proper composition, which is not the same for everybody, but I don't think that anybody who had grit, right. And then didn't have love or didn't have, uh, trust or didn't have like, if, if we sort of painted this picture of people and they were only one of those traits, they would live a very incomplete world and yet the way in which we're offering solutions or or remedies to people who are looking for help is an overemphasis on this one certain thing right mm-hmm. i like i don't want just love i also want outrage right i want anger i want sadness i want frustration i want this i want the ability of a system to deal with the complexity of the world as is and mm-hmm. love is not enough for me neither is grit like i don't just need grit i need rest Right. Right? And Mm -hmm. so like these these are the kinds of things that I think we're we so are 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 primed to find solutions that are easy and that make it easy for us to incorporate. And then we get out of balance we get out of whack or we get into an unharmonious relationship with the other aspects of who we are. Mm.
0: Okay, yes. So I do think that people do want uh easy answers, of course, and they want things that give them um, kind of the, the formula to follow. And it feels relieving, feels good, I think, in the time that they receive it. But then when they're in certain situations, if they are feeling out of whack, usually the explanation is, well, you're not following the formula right. And it could be that the formula is faulty, but again, within certain systems, it's never going to be seen that way if it came from on high, you know, and so then it must be that you're not remembering it right, or you're not doing it right, or you're not uh, as open in your heart to it as you need to be or whatever else. But yeah, the, the complexity having both sides of things or more than just both sides of things is a really very important thing to remember that, right, you don't want a life that's just about grit. I mean, that actually sounds horrendous. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. So you can like till your soil and build your house and that's, you know, and you won't complain. But what kind of life is that for a lot of people? And where's the richness and the softness and everything else? But I do think that there is something about um, people resisting moving from one word to the next, like moving from the answer being love to it being resilience. Because I think they might think or they're told that they have to give up one in order to have the other and it's not it is it's it's a combo platter of, right. of of a lot of things and right it can be very complex i think you know you're also talking about humility to hubris and all along the way and i think a lot about um intention that when sometimes when when people want to become um politicians they are going to have to have a certain amount of hubris. Mm-hmm. And what you also hope is for the humility. You hope that they're doing it for the right reason, that their intention is not just so they can be the boss and just so they can have the power or just so they can take the power away from other people. But it is that they're saying, I think I can do this, which takes confidence. And I want to do this for others. Mm-hmm. So it's a, that is you know, the humility. And so finding the place in between, I think, is is something hard. And and also for some people where they start out that way, where they have the humility, I've noticed that some of them get kind of um, into the intoxication of it and and then it shifts. Mm -hmm. And so they they leave some of the humility behind. Mm -hmm. And so with some of the the religions that you studied, have you seen where things seemed to start out okay, but then there was a transition because the leader transitioned in that way and that's when it became dangerous or even world leaders that they lost their sense of kind of what I would see as the right intention to do what they were doing. I think of Jim Jones when I think of an Mm -hmm. example like that because he sort of started as a street preacher Mm -hmm. and then wound up starting Jonestown, which Mm -hmm. means something along the way went quite awry. Mm -hmm. And so I just... I don't know if you have found it just in terms of a, a a religious group or something where it's taken over maybe by a new leader and then it shifts the whole feeling of it and it shifts the amount of safety that people have within
1: it. Yeah, I you know I don't I don't know. I am trying to think of a particular example and I can't think of one that comes to mind. I I think what I like to remember is that we all have an incredible amount of um, capacity for evil mm-hmm. um, and that it's not always even for lack of the right intention or lack of training or lack of knowing and um, in, in, I was actually reading an article this morning um, on the Auschwitz exhibit at the I think it's it's not at the Holocaust Museum in New York it's, uh, in, um, in DC I think it's at a it's a traveling exhibit mm. on Auschwitz, and it was mm. a really um, great article in the Atlantic by this woman who was talking about um, how well done it was, and also how the Holocaust is not a metaphor for other things. Um, and it, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was a teaching assistant for ten sections on the class on the Holocaust. I worked on the Shoah Foundation's first melon grant, grant to incorporate mm. testimony into. Uh, classrooms and I, I think that the capacity for regular ordinary people to commit acts of evil with very little prompting is something that we refuse to look at in the eyes mm-hmm. um, and will always attribute to some moment or something rather than it's, it's actually really pretty um, pretty latent, and like it's a very stark reality. Uh, I do work all over the world in um, with people who are impacted by conflict and in post-conflict settings, uh, training leaders um, who live and stay in those places who are trying to do work that's transformational, and the amount of violence that um, we inflict on ourselves uh, and others for whatever reason has. You can find a motivation that's, you know, religious or not, or you know, as political or as racial or as ethnic or as linguistic or as class. But all of these, mo- I mean, the reality is humans are capable of a tremendous amount of evil, and that does not go away when they're in religious settings, and it doesn't, it doesn't go away just because they, um, it doesn't transform, right? That mm-hmm. the the, the, the mm-hmm. capacity is always there. Mm-hmm. What might be different is the ability. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the. I mean, it's a pretty grim view of what's possible, but I also think we need to keep it in mind. And, you know, uh, Irving Greenberg is a theologian, said there's there's nothing there's no statement theological or otherwise that should be uttered that can't be uttered in the face of a child that's burning. Um, And I think that that's really important. Like we tend to try to create pictures of the world that make it easy for us to understand and to see things as good and true and valuable and, and sweet. And I think all of those things are present, as is the capacity for really terrible things. Um, and so sometimes it's not a change in the person, it's the change in the environment that enables them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not a change in their life circumstances so much as the, the um, constraints or uh, available options that enable people to do good or bad.
0: Yeah. Wow. Right. So uh, oh, I had so many thoughts about that while you were while you were talking. One of the things that I was thinking about was, yes, people have said to me it was because I was within a certain environment where I knew that I couldn't act on my impulses, that it would have been wrong or that I would have been um, punished by the leader or by God or whatever else. But that there are other people who say, because I was a part of this, I felt ultimately entitled to sort of rain terror down on others and that it was my right. And it was my obligation suddenly and to have the shift in both directions, but to both extremes is very, is really very fascinating Mm -hmm. to me. And, and I think also seeing that we are vulnerable and what makes us vulnerable. And so from what you've Studied with the capacity for evil, is it something that we are born with? Is it something that gets cultivated? Because I know there are some people who are born with sociopathic tendencies. And so that is just what it is. That's mm-hmm. their wiring. It's a very tiny percent of the population and it wouldn't explain all that's happening in the world. So right. my sense is that some of it is fostered. And, and, and before I even let you answer my question, I mean, I, I've talked to people who were raised in organizations that were uh, white supremacist, and when they left, they realized that that wasn't them, but that there was something very um, uh, powerful, and they got a charge out of being able to feel like they could terrorize other people or look down on other people, and they also that they received in the kind of social psychological way the validation, right, the for reinforcement. Doing it. The reinforcement, they moved up the ranks, people liked them more, people trusted them more, Um, they got more kudos for doing bad things. And so what do you think it is that for some people that makes them um, kind of grow into that? Is it their psychological need? Is it the social psychological piece? Is it all of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it. I do think that people's moral codes matter. And I think that the way in which you're socialized, where the, the moral code that you, the way that you make sense of the world and your behavior, your worldview, the way that you're socialized, the system of rewards that you're in, um, the your self-perception, all of those things um, interrelate to form a, a way that people interact with the world. And I also think that all of those things can be changed. Right? One of the reasons why I engage with, working with leaders who have been through, you know, all sorts of forms of political and social violence and upheaval or or who are just doing that in a a context like the United States, which has its own forms of political upheaval and violence Mm -hmm. um, is because I think that people still do have agency, right? They do have the ability to make different choices, but they can't do that in the abstract, right? They need to be reinforced, Right. So uh, we were doing a program. I I work with the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is a quasi-governmental agency. And my center and USIP run a joint program called Generation Change, which focuses on um, developing the capacity of youth leaders to engage in peace building in mostly in post-conflict environments. Um, And we have people who have. Uh, from South Sudan, who have never been, um, you know, a Dinka and a Noor have never been in the same environment and Mm -hmm. who have experienced real violence from that group. Um, And violence that touches them in very personal ways, having your, you know, your, when a parent killed in front of you, running from uh, violence in Juba to get to a UN uh, safety camp as violence breaks out. Like things that are incredibly traumatic Mm -hmm. forms of Mm -hmm. violence Mm -hmm. and the people who have gone through those can make choices about how they respond to them right not that you know not that those choices are what's the right way to say this it's not as though that it's you know if somebody killed a parent in front of me i would have a very hard time engaging in peace and reconciliation work Mm -hmm. Right. I understand that. And I don't I don't uh, I'm not unsympathetic to the fact that that would be an incredibly hard thing for me. And I am struck by the fact that many of the people I work with have had these forms of violence and the choices that they make because they were given an opportunity to make to make choices. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And not everybody has those opportunities. Like Not everybody has an opportunity to make a choice that will um enable them to get the reinforcement that doing kind of pre- peace building work is is valuable, but they still, they've made these choices. And so it's a combination of what's available to you in the environment that you're in and what gets reinforced and also thinking about and developing forms of, you know, empathy and recipro- like reciprocal understanding and um, reflexivity so that you, you can, you can see something other than just your own experience. Right, and you can have some form of like a contribution to something that's a little self-transcendent. Um, and I think if you've been involved in traumatic experience, and no one acknowledges it, no one understands it, you don't get any sort of form of healing from it. You are really in the middle of a you know traumatic cycle. That it's it's hard to do anything other than be in that place. Um, and so there's a there's a lot of components that are required for people to make. And act on their agency and to make good, uh, it, when faced with really difficult circumstances, to make really, you know, positive choices for themselves. And it's really understandable why they don't. Mm. Um, and at the same time, there are people who do. And it's um, it's pretty remarkable that they are able to. right? They're able to transcend circumstance and system and do work that's valuable. Right.
0: Right. And I I think also when when you talk about these kinds of traumas that, you know, luckily, most of us have not had to experience. What happens, it feels to me that um, is that after you've been traumatized in that way, if you can't come up for air, if then something else happens and then something else happens, and then I think it wears down your resolve and your ability to bounce back Mm -hmm. and to feel hopeful that it's ever going to change. And that I think there's a, the hopelessness can also drive a certain kind of um, isolation where you just feel like the world isn't a safe place, mm-hmm. or you can sometimes turn it into you being the one who has to show that you are more powerful than the other forces out there, mm-hmm. you know, that just keep trying to knock you down. Either way, there's going to be a big emotional reaction to it. I'm wondering also about your work all all over the world. So it sounds like you're going to places where there is a lot of conflict and and a lot of pain. And so what is the goal there? When you go, what are they bringing you there for? And also maybe what have you noticed has happened because of your involvement?
1: So we've done work um, in particular places and then with particular populations. Sometimes the work is... um, you know where the population is. So for the South Sudanese, for example, I've been in um in Tanzania and Uganda, but no, I've never been to South Sudan. Um, but there's a a large refugee and diaspora population in Kenya, and Tanzania and Uganda. So I tend to go uh, either to places or to work with populations where they've been impacted by some form of conflict or violence, war, or just kind of destabilization. And it tends to be with people who are younger. So the UN resolution 2250 is about youth and youth in the international context, I think is under 30. So it's like 18 to 30. Um, And the people who are uh, selected for these programs are people who are already doing work and showing leadership potential um, in their own communities. And our job is to help them deepen their leadership practice uh, and in conflict resolution conflict management, conflict analysis and then a whole host of leadership skills including you know understanding who they are, understanding themselves, the way that their stories relate to the work that they do, being able to help catalyze support for what they're trying to um, to engage with. And I think I think what strikes me always is that for the people who are engaged in the work um, that is really close to their hearts, there's never really anybody who does work around conflict or around you know painful subjects that doesn't have some way that they see themselves in it, um, and I find that sometimes you have to spend a little time before you hear what that is, and sometimes people are just wanting to mm. to share it right off the bat because it's uh, it's so present for them um, and. You know, I do that in my own work. So, you know, we started a, a Muslim leadership program here in the U.S. And it was, I, I came home, I came to a friend's house, this woman named Medina, who was working for a Muslim organization uh, in, I guess it was the second term of the Bush administration. So it was a pretty uh, difficult time. And she just came into her apartment. She sat on her couch, her couch sort of like, sort of the weight of her and everyone in her life sat on the couch with her and she just started to cry. And she was so overwhelmed by how this system that was around her was failing her. And it was not just the larger context. It was also the Muslim community that she was working in that was asking her to do more, that was putting pressure on her. And it was just this feeling that she describes of being used up and burnt out and invisible and attacked and just... And and also voiceless, and there was a part of that that really hit me personally, and it was because when I was 18, I started to be stalked by a schizophrenic man who took an unnatural and uh, um, attachment to me, and he was 20 years older than I was, and I, you know, filed a restraining order. I got like we went through the whole process of dealing with this, and this is in the, I guess, late 90s, so it's not as people are not as aware of it. I remember going to the police station to report um, some flowers that he had sent with a card that was very disturbing. And the police telling me that I was lucky to receive that kind of attention. And I and this is a you know guy who's 40 years old, who's schizophrenic, who God told him that we were supposed to be together. The His restraining order um, response said, I just want to get you on the stand to find out if you're a virgin. I mean, like really disturbing things for an 18 year old girl to be on the receiving end of, and I didn't say anything to them when they said that to me, and I just thought, here's a system that's okay watching me slowly die. And so when Adina sat on her couch with this, like the system is using me up, it doesn't see me, and I am like voiceless and powerless, it so profoundly connected me to that feeling, and not that it's it wasn't the same right it was a completely different context but it was a it was a feeling that i could really relate to and so i think anybody who does work that is about healing the world or you know repairing it in some way is also sees themselves in that form of healing and repair mm. um and the more that we know that the more that it, it and the more that we're aware of it i think it took me years to figure that out <laughs> Um, I, I think I, I like I always understood that I saw my friend feeling this and I had a over a hyperdeveloped sense of agency. And also, like, I thought we could make a difference by creating this program. But I, I never really understood the depths at which it was personal for me, even though I was not a part of it. Um, and I think that that's there's a lot of that that I see. That's a pretty common thread that goes throughout different people's work around the world. The other thing I think is that um, there is such a need for joy. Like people talk about self-care and they poo-poo it and it's like spa days and rosé. Like, first of all, I love spa days and rosé. But there's something really wonderful about joy. And so, so much of what we do in these programs is try to temper giving people, like helping people work through hard and difficult things and giving people skills to, to really make a difference and also remind them of this full range of experience and let them be joyful. Right. um, And not in a way that's forced, but in a way that they're hungry for. So many of our, our programs end with dance parties. I mean, half the people that know me call me DJ Bree because <laughs> I have like I have music from around the world that I'll that I'll play. And people, these especially youth where youth culture is right. so transnational, mm-hmm. there's such a desire to move your body. Right. Also, after doing work in a room all day long, like to move your body and to like experience joy and the the release of, of being together. And I think that we so discount it because it's not seen as serious. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, and we have really underestimated the connection between, you know, our need to move and our, and our bodies, and our need to experience joy and not just be in our heads all the time. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's something that I, I often try to point out for people who want to do Work in conflict, and also that PowerPoint is terrible, and you should never use it. Because <laughs> <laughs> because I, like what I really want people to do, and what we design our training around, is really for people to have an experience uh-huh. uh, and to use adult learning principles. Which is not for me to impart, you know, knowledge to you, but it's for me to help you understand how to make sense of what you have uh, learned through your own work and give you some frameworks to to think about that, and maybe some skills, but always to get really quickly into application, really quickly into doing it so that you know it, right? And that's, that's part of like my democratic impulse is not that I should teach you, that I should help you understand how you can take this and use it in a valuable way. And so mm-hmm. now over the five years of doing this program, um, all of the people that we've trained, there's a portion of them that have become their, the trainers of this. Generally, people go and they do it. And so I rarely do any of the actual training any longer. They're being trained by their peers. And so it's, to me, the embodiment of that notion that we shouldn't create these you know, these environments where there's, there's specialized knowledge. Like, there's nothing that I know that someone else couldn't know or learn mm-hmm. and then use in their own way. And so the best part is seeing our material being done all around the world, right? There's a there's a woman who's doing a program in a federal prison in Bogota for former FARC um, combatants who, as part of their reentry process, are going through our part of our peace-building program. And one of them is about um, kind of a, taking a, a stock of your life and understanding the path that you've gone through and the major experiences mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this woman said was um, that. Uh, when you are a partisan fighter, your entire world revolves around the fact that the other side is not is not like really fully human, and to be a partisan is to live without empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what you have to teach people as they enter society is the relationship with somebody who is politically or experientially different than you, but for whom that that's not shouldn't be a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like when you think about what people are capable of, it comes down to that. Like we have created in Colombia, there was decades and decades of if we if we disagree, uh, if we have different views politically, and this even predates FARC, if we disagree politically, that this can end in a form of violence. And when I was we did a program um, with people who are involved in the peace process in Colombia. And one of the guys said, what Colombia is trying to figure out how to learn as a society is how we hold political disagreement that won't result in violence. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, oh, we're precisely unlearning this lesson in the United States. Like we're, we're, our polarization is so violent, like it's so culturally violent. And then, you know, we also have a, a really violent society. And isn't that interesting that we're going in opposite directions?
0: it is interesting. It shows also sometimes what's right under the surface that we don't remember when we think that we're so civilized, whatever that means. Right. And so then I think it is very scary to see um, how easy it is to light a fuse and then just have people enjoy um, kind of dancing in the flames with each other and And liking that power and not seeing, I think, uh, how dangerous it is and how far reaching it is and how it also doesn't solve a problem. But I think the the need for joy is such an interesting point, because when I work with people who were raised in uh, abusive households or they were in cultic systems or whatever else, there wasn't laughter. And there weren't moments of any kind of levity. That was a waste of time. And also there wasn't space for it because you were dealing with survival and you were dealing with just how to make sense of your reality. And so there was a lot more seriousness. Kind of children who didn't get to have a childhood and um, people also who went into feeling um, depressed or sad or self-righteous or whatever, but those kinds of emotions that are not about levity. So I really like that you're called DJ Bree, (laughs) which is a great thing. And I'll remember, you know, that dancing and joy are good and PowerPoints are bad. I think it's a good (laughs) takeaway from this conversation. Um, But I think the other part that is so fascinating to me is that when you see that what you're doing is you're just starting the ball rolling and people can take it in any direction and that you don't, you don't have the need to steer it, that you just have the need to kind of offer them the opportunity to find ways to make their life better in whatever way that would work for them or their community. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing. I wish there were more people who taught in the same way that you taught. And so when you also talk about people being dehumanized, you know, of course, it reminds me of uh, Nazis calling people vermin, right? right? If you're just bugs, right, that you can be exterminated.
1: Rwandans or cockroaches, right? Tuts- ah. Hutus are, uh, you know, calling Tutsis cockroaches, right? There's always... there's a, Dehumanization usually takes the form of animal. Wow. I didn't actually know that. Okay. Well, thank you for that.
0: And so then it becomes easier to have this lack of um, empathy to also not feel like you're doing something wrong, but instead you're preventing harm. You're preventing um, a plague, you know, uh, someone, you know, the world being overrun by something that's evil. And so I think to a certain degree, when you talk to some people who were involved in these processes... What I find interesting is that sometimes they really don't have a sense that they were doing something wrong. And and it feels very genuine that the, the information they got was they really thought they were doing some good prevention work for the world, even if they were killing people along the way, which, you know, is very mind boggling. The other part, just to go back to your story, even though you don't have to talk more about your particular story, but just the, the stalking and how scary that was. And then also to go to the police and to have them say that you were lucky. Uh, you know, I mean, mm, where do you go with that? Because the, that's the, supposed to be the system in place to protect you. And it it's not only not protecting you, it's fostering it and it's supporting it. And it's not understanding at all. And yes, I, I would hope and I do know that now it's different for a lot of people, but still, I'm sure not all but it's reminding me of something that people talk about, about also being in controlled environments where um, it's a closed loop, mm-hmm. so that you go to people within the system who you think are going to help you, but they are kind of enabling the bad to keep happening. And if you, especially as a child or as a teenager, then don't know who else there is to go to, then you can feel like you're on your own and you just have to keep yourself safe somehow and look over your own shoulder. And while for some people that can be um, empowering, that they feel like they were able to keep themselves safe, on the other hand, it's terrifying. It is terrifying to not have backup. Mm -hmm. And so if, if you can talk a little bit more about Really, what has changed from what you can see, like if this were to be happening to you now, God forbid, sort of what happened mm-hmm. and also what changes you've noticed so that people feel more protected systemically?
1: So there's so many things there. So one is that I think a lot of it is about the story that you tell yourself about what happens and what you do. So for a long time, I, I had a very profound sense that there was something wrong with me as a result of what had happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't understand that that was what shame was because people would say you did nothing wrong. And I'd be like, of course I did nothing wrong. Like, what a stupid thing for you to say. (laughs) Like, (laughs) why would you say that? Um, because I didn't know that, that shame showed up as not, I did something wrong, but that there was something wrong with me as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that was a really important lesson. And I didn't ever interpret what I had done as a form of self-protection. Right? because I felt ashamed of what had happened uh, and he ended up going to prison for three years um as a result it was very it was all really difficult um at what at, as a result of what had happened um I didn't ever interpret my own behavior as as acting powerfully on my own behalf which I thought was really remarkable and it, it actually came as a result of when I was pregnant with my first kid and I was pregnant with my first kid and I had a, a complications from the, from the get-go. I ended up having a fibroid that became, it was so large that at the end, uh, when I finally delivered her via C-section, it was 22 centimeters in diameter. Uh, and so, you know, at my friends donated blood before my C-section, it was all very scary. I actually wrote about it in USA today. Um, because uh, all throughout I thought, like, we don't know how this pregnancy is going to go. Um, and uh, we had lots of conversations about what were our options. Uh, and so I became very face-to-face with them. But I also was at a time... There was a time when that was happening where people... There was a resurgence in home birth. And so uh, first, uh, people stopped asking me if I was having twins and started asking me if I was having triplets, which was always really nice because um, I was enormous. And I was at a baby shower. And this woman was just going on and on about home birth. And I was like, I knew from week eight that I was gonna have a C-section if I was able to carry the term. She was really insistent and she was like, have you considered a home birth? And I finally said, I don't even do my taxes at my house. I take that to a professional. And she was really incensed by it. And, um, and so I, like, I learned how to engage with it hum- uh, in, with humor, but then I, I never felt ashamed of that answer. Like, I never felt like there was something wrong with me uh, because I was going to have a C-section, even though there was this whole, like, home birth, natural, you know, whatever, which, cool, do that, Mm -hmm. awesome, not for me. Um, And I never felt stigmatized by it because it was such a clear choice for me. And so in working through that, what I realized was that I knew that the right thing to do was to take these steps. And to take those steps was about protecting myself and then hopefully protecting my daughter. and. I needed to reinterpret what I had done as an 18-year-old and a 19-year-old who went to prison when I was 20 um, as somebody who was also taking those steps to be self protective and how powerful it was to interpret my story not as somebody pleading to a system, but as somebody who was like, look at how aware I was that I was like, this is wrong. I should do something about it. And to feel proud of myself for how I responded rather than feeling the weight of what was done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that uh, the ability of people to understand their own behavior in different lenses, I think is such a profoundly healing um, thing that humans can engage in. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, that really helped. And I, I, you know, I have a hyperdeveloped sense of agency as a result, uh, and it's hard when I'm confronted with the limits of my own. Uh, power, and it frustrates me, and it's the thing I like the least Mm -hmm. in the world is to feel uh, that barrier. Um, And I think that that barrier still exists. I mean, it exists for many people that I had. I mean, the way that I was treated, I like, you know, I'm white, I'm upper middle class, I was, you know, fairly good looking 18 year old kid, you know, like I was like, I, I had a nice I had everything going for me, I was going to college, right? Like things that the system are designed to say, like this it works for you, right? Like you have all of the privileges of it, but it didn't work. Like it didn't work the way that I was told it was. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are not brought up to think the system works for them because it's worked against them for huge portions of uh, not only their lives, but their, you know, the history of their families and their ancestors. And so I think I was confronted with the disillusionment of a reality that wasn't true. Mm -hmm. Um, But other people are brought up to know that that's not true. Um, and, and it's still not true for them today. And unfortunately, it's still... We're actually in another round of this because he recently resurfaced and is back in prison. And it's a little bit easier to be a middle-aged lady who's, you know, less cute <laughs> and, and less, like, you know, a, a sexualized object for somebody, but it's still not easy. Um, and it, it took a lot of work to... Um, to get to where we are now. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it's easier to be a, a middle-aged mom than it is to be an 18-year-old um, mm-hmm. uh, to go through it.
0: Right. So I, I appreciate you sharing about that and about your experience and about you also having an opportunity when you were talking about the way you were going to have your child, that you followed what the doctors were saying and you followed your intuition. It's sort of reminding me, maybe this is, more information than my mom would want me to share about her. But, you know, when she was having kids, it was during a time of women's lib. And and a lot of her friends were deciding to not nurse because it meant that you you couldn't do it in public and you would have to kind of go into another room and leave the meeting or leave the party or whatever else to go do this thing that you were somehow relegated to do. And she was heads of organizations, but she still nursed. That was her choice, even though she dealt with people saying to her, you know, how could you do this? How could you be, you know, schlepping your daughter to these rallies to show that, you know, women are equal to men and then have to go out to a, you know, an room for an hour, you know, just to nurse. And she said, I I, I can sort of, I see both sides, that, that that they're both empowering for me, that it's something I can provide the world or provide my child. Like, you have to kind of make sense of it, but sometimes you have to fight against the people around you in order to do it, which is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sorry that you have had to deal with this man who, you know, has been sort of um, kind of in this this shadowy figure, someone just kind of there. Mm-hmm. It's hard when you're dealing with um, somebody who has um, a disorder that makes them not at all connected with reality. And then you hope that then again, there's a system in place to protect you. And it sounds like he got himself into trouble again, and he's in jail, which is um, a good thing for whoever he was doing that to. But just to finish up, I know that you're involved in so many organizations and you're teaching so many students, and I know that right now it's a it's a disheartening time with what's happening in our country and, um, and how things are um, tense and scary, and so... What are you noticing that you need to potentially impart on the next generations to help them feel empowered, to help them feel hopeful about making that sort of change? Or what seems to be important to them about what steps they think they can take in order to make some sort of change, in order to make some sort of impact where it feels like the forces are kind of against you to really make a difference?
1: I actually think the biggest force against us is our own indifference. So um, I think there's a lot of territory that is left uncontested. You know, when I wrote um, my op-ed about, um, it was really about late-term abortion, but it was about my first pregnancy, um, when we pitched it to a, a news outlet, one of the things they said was, this was the uh, only the second, like, bodily pro- abor- pro-abortion pitch that they'd had in many years. And so if you care about something, it's always easy to focus on the, the size of the opposition, and the opposition feels really great, and it's well-funded, and it's well-coordinated, and, you know, they're good at, at uh, the discipline of getting their message and size, you know, across. And there's so many people who are not in the opposition, but we don't create enough center of gravity for the things that we care about to pull them to our side. And often we want we want people to look and say and act just like us mm. in order for them to be counted on our side. And sometimes actually not joining the other side is actually a, 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 like a good political strategy. Right. So there's I think that we have gotten to the point where we're so out of practice with how to live in a plural environment, an environment where you are different than I am and I am different than you and you're going to use different words and I'm going to use different words and we're going to have probably really different understandings of how the world works. And yet we might actually share some things that can be used to bring us into relationship with each other. But if the mark of the end of the day is that I can only love you if you are like me or I can only work with you to the degree to which you reflect me, then that we're not actually in a winning political environment because that's just a sort of form of narcissism, right? And the, the most fundamental reality of the world is that we're all very different. And so I think that if I, one, I really appreciate um, yet the younger generation's sense uh, of kind of entitlement where it comes to their own time and where it comes to the, the kind of life that they want to live. I think that, that it's like, it, it teaches us some good things there. I've seen some young people draw some boundaries about like, now I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that for work. Like I. I, I, I've learned some things that I think, um, you know, I think the boomers have f- for uh, made Xers think that we had to walk through a lot of fires <laughs> mm-hmm. and we might have to walk through a lot of fires, but maybe not without some level of protection. And so I, I, I like the fact that younger people have a sense of self-entitlement that I think is sometimes pretty healthy, um, though it can be tempered with a lot of entitlement in other ways that it's not. I would remind them that, because you can reflect yourself, like you can project yourself out to the world, doesn't mean the world's going to reflect back at you the way that you want it to. And so if if you have to wait for the perfect people or the perfect conditions or the perfect words in order to make progress, then we've already lost. And that uh, look at things and people on balance, so rather than in the one specific I was talking, we ran a campaign just on in my private life, my colleague and I, Rebecca Seger, who's the chair at LMU's sociology department. And I ran a, a small dollar donor campaign in the last election because we wanted to help flip the House and flip the Senate blue. And what was really interesting is there were some times where people had problems with individual candidates. I was like, every single candidate will say something or take a position that you don't like. You're looking for ways to be disillusioned. Rather than looking at like the bigger goal and the bigger goal was mm-hmm. to get every, right to get the house, right? Because mm-hmm. that matters. Mm-hmm. And so I think we lose perspective because we're so caught up in, you know, did they ever say this word that I don't like now? Or did they ever, you know, have a policy that I would find a off- Like we hold the bar so high to um, perfection that we make it very hard. Uh, for anybody to live up to our standards Mm -hmm. Uh, and the standards always shift right your standard is different than mine and so I think it's really important that young people understand the um, progress is not about perfection Um, and sometimes it's moving sometimes it's moving us closer to the goal and sometimes it's holding the line keeping us from sliding further back into something uh, to a loss and I think having a kind of political imagination that understands that and how that works is really important and having enough, um, care and concern for other people that when they are imperfect or when they are imperfect vis-a-vis our own sense of who we are, which Mm -hmm. is generally how we measure things, um, that we don't, we don't just cancel them all because there would be no one left.
0: Hmm. Wow. Well, Brie, I, I have learned a lot. And I feel that your your students are lucky to have you and the organizations that you're involved with uh, worldwide are lucky to have you involved. And uh, I hope to be able to talk to you again, because I think our our conversations can go in so many different directions. And I can also only imagine the dinner table conversation between you and your husband with religion and science and politics and whatever else. I'm sure that would be great to be a fly on the wall. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the good that you're doing in the world and for also fostering, kind of cultivating, nurturing future, um, leaders and also people who care, people who care enough to want to do something or say something and make a difference. So thank, thank you. you. One more thing before you go. I loved my conversation with Bree. I learned so much. I love the way she puts things. I love the way she looks at things, and I hope to be able to talk to her again on the podcast. She had a quote that I want to be able to talk more about. She said, the biggest force against us is our own indifference. This reminds me of many quotes I've heard over the years, including the one by Martin Luther King Jr. In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies— but the silence of our friends. So if we are uncaring, disinterested, not even curious, it's easier to turn a blind eye or discount or devalue others' needs or suffering. I'm not making a judgment call about giving money or a bottle of water to a homeless person or walking right past them. That's your choice, but at least be curious about how to solve this problem or at the very least, make sure you still see them as human. But from a young age, I think it's important to teach people that things matter, that people matter, and that causes matter, whether you agree with them or not, because it means people will be aware and engaged and active participants in the world and be able and interested to look beyond their own lives and not just close their blinds. I also want to mention that there is a real issue we deal with sometimes that is called compassion fatigue. The feeling that we're tired of caring and not having it matter, not having our efforts make the difference we were working towards over and over again. There are people out there who are seen as uncaring or selfish, but it could be that they used to care. They used to care, but they got overwhelmed by the daunting task before them and all too often... They got reminded of their powerlessness or voicelessness and gave up to save their health or their sanity, and I have compassion for them. I understand that. All too often, those who want to create a change become discouraged and disheartened by being roadblocked or because they're tired of being the David in the story, while those stopping them or those entities they're up against feel like Goliath over and over again. But I do know that sometimes all that means is you need to keep trying or find another way or sometimes just take steps that are smaller but still meaningful, which brings me to the starfish story. I've heard this story over and over again while I was growing up at my school, at my camp. Some of you might know it. It's by Lauren Isley. One day, a man was walking along the beach when he noticed a boy picking something up and gently throwing it into the ocean. Approaching the boy, he asked, what are you doing? The boy replied, throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up and the tide is going out, and if I don't throw them back, they'll die. Son, the man said, don't you realize there are miles and miles of beach and hundreds of starfish to save? What you're doing doesn't make a difference. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up another starfish, and threw it back into the surf. Then, smiling at the man, he said, It made a difference to that one. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel.